where with the woman in the well, that whole uh, series of events that takes place, um, we're kind of in the middle of it. We've seen that, of course, uh, she comes out while Jesus is by the well. They begin to talk about some things. Uh, she discovers that Jesus uh, is more than meets the eye. And uh, we're going to be starting in verse 27 and going through verse 38 this morning. So hear the word of our God. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would send the same Holy Spirit who inspired this word to open our hearts to its truth. We ask that you would remove our apathy, our cynicism, our callousness, our fear, rebellion, so that we may really be hungry for this bread of life that feeds our souls. Nourish our hearts for your work. Fill us with the joy that is our strength. We ask this for the honor and glory of your dear Son and our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Rosaria was in some ways very much like the woman we meet here at the well. She was, at least from the perspective of the religious people in her community, a fairly scandalous woman. While she was a tenured professor at the University of Syracuse, her specialty was English, but she really didn't teach English. Uh, she taught what is called queer theory. She was an advocate for all of the uh, alternative lifestyles on campus, all of the, the student groups. She was the, the faculty advisor. She, in fact, was one of the people that led the charge initially for rights for partners, domestic partners. For her latest project, she had decided that she would write a piece criticizing the religious right. And so in order to prepare herself for this new task, 
taking up the charge against these bigots and everything else, she started to read the Bible. Now, it wasn't that she was foreign to the Bible. She was, of course, like the woman at the well. She was spiritual, so to speak, because she went to a universalist, Unitarian church. She went to church. She was engaged in causes like environmentalism. So she started to read the scriptures. And in the course of her research, she ended up doing one thing, uh, writing an op-ed piece in the local newspaper, and got an unusual response from a local Presbyterian pastor. She was expecting, as you might have expected, some scathing comments from this pastor, but actually he sort of affirmed her in some ways and opened the door for future dialogue. It took her a while, but she finally took him up on it. Didn't meet in his office, but he invited her, the radical English professor, into his home. She came in, and over time, a relationship, a friendship developed between this professor and this pastor and his wife. Things began to change as she was reading the scriptures. Oh, she still saw some of the problems of the religious right but she also began to see her own. She was indeed very much like the woman at the well. This morning we're going to see what happens, in a sense, the rest of the story, as someone who's famous used to say. We're going to see that witness is a mark of those who believe in Christ. We're going to see this essentially in three different ways. The first way is from verses 27 through 30. And we will see here, I hope, that I'm actually able to communicate this clearly, that the Spirit wells up in witness to Christ. Last week we ended on that note that she, in a sense, trying to push Jesus off, has said, well, you know, when Messiah comes, he's going to tell us about all these things, you know, these where to worship and all that kind of stuff that you're trying to tell me about. And Jesus says to her, the one you are listening to, I am. Meaning, I am the Messiah, but more than that, I am the I am, God himself. She's stunned by this. The text says that, that right now, you know, the disciples are returning from their journey. They went into town, remember, uh, to go get food for Jesus because he was weary from the journey, and that's where they left him at the well. And so they come back, and they see this exchange going on, and they're perplexed. Now, that, shouldn't per- that would not perplex us right? But it is perplexing to them on two different counts. First off, as I mentioned briefly last week, and I'll I'll repeat this rabbinical saying to reinforce this, uh, there is one that says, a man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even with his sister or his daughter, on account of what men may think. A man shall not talk to a woman in the street, not even with his own wife, and especially not with another woman on account of what men may say. Wow, talk about the fear of man. Not even able to talk to your own wife in the street because some stranger who doesn't realize that's your wife might think something untoward is happening. Bondage. And so, you know, the... The disciples are used to this sort of thinking, and so they see Jesus there talking to this woman, and oh no, (laughs) 
what's going on. But it's not even that, because they address him as rabbi here. Remember, they, 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 they believe he's a rabbi. And so it was often viewed among the Jews that for a rabbi to take time to instruct a woman was not only foolish, but evil. A rabbi was not even to, to instruct his own daughter. Because that, they thought, would be taking away time from the study of the Torah. And so here is Jesus engaging with a woman. Engaging with, on religious, spiritual truth with a woman. Truly, as some have said, Jesus did not share the sexism of his day. This is not the only instance. Remember, from Luke chapter 10, the Mary Martha story. Why is Martha so upset? Because she's in the kitchen doing what women do, according to her culture. And her sister, Mary, is out there doing what men are supposed to do. She's listening to the rabbi. And she should be in here. And she goes and she says, Jesus, please, get my sister to come inside and help me. And he reminds her that there is one thing necessary and that Mary was doing it. Mary is not rebuked by Jesus for sitting under his teaching. He did not think it unprofitable. He did not think it evil to teach a woman the meaning of Scripture. Paul gets a bad rap. In culture, in movies, he's viewed as a woman hater. And yet Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. A Jew of his day would not say, let a woman learn, period. But he says, let her learn. Let her understand. Let her come to, to know and believe these things for herself, not just on the second-hand information of her husband or her father. So, these disciples show up. They see what's going on. It doesn't fit within their culture and their understanding, and they are so flummoxed they can't even speak to Jesus yet. They don't even ask a question about what's going on. They just kind of... Feeling probably awkward at this moment, she leaves. She leaves her water jar. She probably intends to come back for it, but she's on, in a sense, a much greater mission than that. She goes back into the town. She goes back into the town where everyone gossips about her to witness about Christ. Notice what she says when she begins to encounter these people. Um, let's see. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Who's she saying this to? People who know all that she ever did and who talk about all that she ever did, usually behind her back. But if they do to her, it's usually in a very negative, condemnatory sort of way, judgmental sort of way. Remember, she's at the well at noon because no one is there. She doesn't want to see the looks. She doesn't want to hear the whispers. She goes to them. The people who speak about all she does to talk about the man who knows everything she has done. Not the irony that's there. 
She, she doesn't come to condemn these people, but she comes to invite them to come and talk with this man. She wonders, I mean, here we see sort of, she's got enough faith, but there's not a whole lot of information yet. Could he be the Christ, is what she's telling them. Come and see for yourself. Don't just rely upon what I'm saying to you. Come and meet with him. Come and speak to him. She speaks. There's something going on that she feels the need to communicate. Well, Rosaria, who I mentioned before, not just saw her sin, but also began to see the Savior. Not just in the scriptures, but also in the people that she interacted with at this Reformed Presbyterian church in upstate New York. It took her a while to get there, you see, because she, every time she would go to, you know, drive to go to church, she would stop within, she'd see it and she'd stop for a while and wonder, what will happen when I show up with my pro-abortion bumper stickers and my rainbows and everything else? She was known in town. Part of what's interesting about her story is that shortly after her conversion, it happens right <clears throat> by the end of the school year, and she's been tasked with, with giving a, a speech to all of the incoming students, which is usually also attended by most of the faculty and many of the student leaders, and she redid her whole thing to explain what has happened to her and to testify what little she knew about Christ to this unbe largely unbelieving uh, university community, recognizing that it meant career suicide. She can't teach what she used to teach. <laughs> what little she knew, she communicated to people. Now, I've been where you sit. When someone starts talking about the E-word or the W-word, evangelism, witnessing, what usually happens is we start to feel, oh no, not again. There's, there's something about that that really we feel a, a sense of burden we, sense a feel, we feel a sense of guilt because we haven't been very engaged in it, perhaps. We struggle with this. I don't want you to struggle with this. I'm not saying this this morning um, because I want you to feel bad. Okay? I want you to see God's provision. Okay? Jesus talked about how he tells the woman at the well about the, the living water that comes within and it wells up into eternal life, right? Last week we talked about how it also welled up in worship. That it is normal and ordinary for people who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them to worship God, to be excited to sing his praises, to speak his praises, uh, to be engaged in this thing and talk about how great he is. That's normal. That's ordinary. Well, the Holy Spirit also wells up with us, within us, for a particular reason as well. Witness. In other words, it's not something you produce. But ultimately, it is something that the Holy Spirit produces within us. And so we shouldn't feel this, this great weight upon ourselves when we think about these things, but we should be more thinking, Spirit, be at work. Spirit, 
be at work. Okay? It's not just this text. Acts chapter 1, which we read. Well, Mark read. What happened? Jesus said, wait. When the Holy Spirit comes, He will give you power. For what? To witness. To proclaim my name in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and beyond. And it wasn't just for the apostles. For we see, for instance, in Acts chapter 8, after the persecution begins and they're scattered, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. It wasn't just the 12 disciples or apostles. Ordinary people were going out and preaching the word. That doesn't mean they were up like this in in a synagogue and preaching, but they were proclaiming in the relationships that they knew that Jesus was the Christ. And so we should should start to begin to think along these lines that witness is normal for a Christian. It it is an important part of the Christian life. It's, It's not just for the uber Christians. It's just not for the trained professionals. Okay? Let's think of it this way. Of course, this is the week that all the kids are here. Okay. Sex is an ordinary, necessary part of marriage. Not too long ago, Jenny and Matt got married, and I'm sure that when they got to their hotel room, after the wedding ceremony and the reception and everything else, they didn't sit down and go, what should we do tonight? And I'm pretty sure he didn't, you know, say, should we play Uno? (laughs) And I'm sure she did not counter with, well, you know, Captain America just came out. Why don't we go to the movies tonight? And it's not just the wedding night. It's meant to be an ordinary part of every marriage. That is why Paul, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, talks about them, talks about this, because they had fallen into some false teaching that thought it was good for a man not to touch his wife. And Paul says, are you crazy? That's, as Richard Pratt would say, that's what the Greek says. Okay? <laughs> Have you lost your minds? Are you crazy? It's meant to be an ordinary part of this thing that we call marriage. It's right there in Genesis 1 and 2. It's there. And so if it's not happening, then we start to ask why it's not happening. To think about that. And there's reasons why. I mean, you know, obviously there could be physical issues that are at play. There could be psychological issues uh, that are at play. Some people have been profoundly abused. And so that is a difficult thing for them to do. And that needs to be addressed. There needs to be healing through the gospel of Jesus Christ brought to that situation. Sometimes it's not physical. Sometimes it's not uh, emotional or, or psychological. Sometimes it's spiritual. Because there has been sin going on in that relationship. And it has not been confessed. It has not been forgiven. And so the connection these two people feel does, it's not really there. And so the magic doesn't happen. Okay? In either case, there's something that should be addressed as much as possible. 
so that what should take place begins to take place. And if we understand that witness is normal for the Christian experience, if it's not taking place, then we should begin to ask, why? Right? Sometimes it's a spiritual problem. Because you know, there's some people who have been spiritually abused. They've been made to go door to door or who knows what. And so for them, there are, there are barriers inside because of what that occult or something may have forced them to do. And so there's an inner resistance to this. And they need to be brought slowly along and healing with the gospel, right? But sometimes, our lack of witness is produced by sin. Not necessarily the, the rejection of this, but sometimes we don't confess our sin. There might be a bit, a, yeah, can't even say it right, a habitual sin that is going on. And that really impedes us from being a bold witness about who Christ is. Now, let's think for a moment here. The woman at the well. What did she do? Did she give a theological dissertation about who Jesus was? All she did was say, come and see. And for some of you, man, that's great. All of us can do that. Come and see. Come and listen. All of us can do that. But some of us, perhaps... Our resistance is because we don't know the word. We, we don't ha- have enough understanding and we're therefore afraid of any questions that might arise. And so we need the spirit and we need the word. There's a call here for us it's not to remain in the, the uh, almost agnosticism, so to speak, in a good way, of the Samaritan woman, but to grow in our understanding of the faith so that we can do more than invite people to church as good as that is, that we can begin to dialogue with people, ask them questions, hear their questions, and begin to respond in a gracious, loving fashion. And so, like worship, witness is produced in the life of the Christian by the Spirit. Okay? You don't make it happen. He does. Secondly, as, I want, as we think through verses 31 through 34, I want us to see that spirit-led witness satisfies the Christian soul. Okay, there's sort of, this is, this is one of those things, if this was a movie, it's separate scenes, but it's happening at the same time because you don't want to do the whole, you know, split screen thing. Who likes watching movies with a split screen? Not me. It's bad enough with football games, okay? Um, <laughs> So imagine for a moment, this is the split screen. This is what's happening. While she's talking to them, Jesus begins talking with the disciples. They, of course, start off with, Rabbi, eat. After all, we just came back from town. We brought food for you. You were hungry. Eat. Jesus makes an astounding sort of statement that they miss completely. He says that he has food that they cannot perceive or discern. And so their minds automatically go to, did you secretly have a pita in your pocket that you didn't tell us about? 
Or did the woman give you something? Did someone show up selling sandwiches and you bought a sandwich from them? Is that, is that what you're talking about, Jesus? They're just like Nicodemus. They're just like the woman at the well. They're just like so many people in John's gospel that what Jesus says goes, because they just think about it in literal, physical, material sense and not missing what he's actually saying. I mean, so they miss what he's actually saying. I can't actually say anything this morning. My tongue seems to be tied. So they miss it. They take him literally. And so Jesus clarifies this, that my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And this implies a couple of things. Jesus recognizes he's on a mission. There is someone who sent him. That someone, of course, is the Father. But the food that he speaks about is to do the will of the Father. In other words, he sees his obedience to the Father, okay, Jesus, the Son of God, obeying God the Father, right? he sees that as trumping his earthly need, his earthly appetites, his hunger. Now, not absolutely, meaning Jesus never ate food, okay, but in this moment, when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness after he had been fasting for 40 days, Satan had said, if you are the Son of God, Oh, he always does the ifs. He gets Jesus to try and question his identity as the Son of God, the unique Son of God. Turn these stones into bread. And Jesus replies in Matthew 4, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And of course we know Jesus is not making this up. It's right there in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And it was originally addressed to the Israelites in the wilderness as they're preparing to go into the promised land. Don't let your earthly appetites determine whether or not you will obey God is the basic bottom line of what's going on there. And of course, we have the many promises in Deuteronomy 8 that God would sustain them and protect them. But we see, as Jesus talks about this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, that Jesus is energized and Jesus is sustained by fulfilling his mission in the power of the Spirit. He was not more hungry and not more weary than when they left. He actually seemed to be less weary less hungry than when they left. What has he been doing? He has not been taking a nap. He has not been secretly getting food or water. He has been witnessing about himself and about God's gift of eternal life to this woman that he met at the well. The will of him who sent him at that moment was to witness to the woman at the well. Jesus was fulfilling his mission and talking to this scandalous, sordid woman from Samaria at the well. Not only that, but he says it is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, to bring it to completion, to bring it to fulfillment. And so there's a task that has to be done, and Jesus lived to do it. And it was getting done, and so he was satisfied. I told Marty there would be no sports analogies or illustrations this week. I'm sorry, Marty. I, 
I have a brief one, okay? If a team wins a championship, doesn't matter, World Series, Stanley Cup, NFL, NBA, what do you see immediately after the game in all of those locker rooms? Do you see the guys running for the burgers? Do you see them going, you know, man, I've been working hard for the last three hours, and I have been exerting myself, you know, physically in, a, in an incredibly demanding way for the last three or four hours. I am famished, and I need myself a cheeseburger. No. They're jumping up and down. They're spraying beer and champagne all over each other, and the celebration goes on and on. The last thing on their minds is food. That's what it was like for Jesus. He was so caught up in his mission that food was not really what was on his mind. He needed food to, eat, to live just like everybody else. But in that moment, he's so excited about what the Father is doing through the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of this woman and is about to do in this community that he doesn't care about food. Now, if this is true of Jesus with regard to his earthly ministry... Remember, as a spirit-filled man, it should be true of us as well, as spirit-filled people. That, that walking in his will brings satisfaction, brings empowerment, brings joy. I don't know how many times, I, you know, going into community group, I'm like, I don't really want to do this. I'm really tired. I didn't get a nap. And, uh, you know, but by the end of community group, I'm like, yeah, that was good. God showed up. That was encouraging. Satisfaction in doing that which he has called us to do. It brings satisfaction. Rosaria continues to experience some of that satisfaction. You know, she's, since that day, she's uh, no longer in academia. She actually is a pastor's wife. God has such a sense of humor, you know. She's now a pastor's wife. And she goes to campuses around the country, and she talks about these things. She talks about her own life and how God brought her out of darkness and into light. And she does it in a very compassionate way because she understands the way sin worked in her own life and that... Symptoms of the deeper problem in the heart. And so she does it in a very winsome sort of way, and she finds great joy and satisfaction as she does it. And we can find joy and satisfaction as we testify to God's grace as well. And so when the Spirit leads us into obedience, that we should be satisfied deep inside. Thirdly, from 35 to 38, Christians rejoice and receive a reward for the harvest. In a sense, this might be almost the hardest thing for us to sometimes accept. Jesus now talks to the disciples in terms that they can understand, sowing and reaping. Some of them were, farm, or, sorry, were fishermen, but they all knew basically about farming. Okay? They, didn't have, they didn't know all the details about how to farm, but they had the big picture about how to farm. Okay? Sowing and reaping. And what's interesting is that earlier, of course, in Mark 1, when he first called some of them, he said to them, follow me and I will make you 
become fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And so they already had an understanding that what they're supposed to be doing is fishing for men. They didn't quite maybe understand what that was, because right now Jesus is calling them again to be engaged in this, although he's using a slightly different metaphor to make his point. Okay? He says to them that the fields are white for harvest. They're ready. Look. And we don't know what time of year it was. I don't know if those guys actually looked at the fields in Samaria and said, yeah, they're white for harvest. We don't know because they took everything literally. But what Jesus is really kind of saying is to them is, he almost, I wonder if he was pointing down the road to the group of people that are starting to come out of the town and say, look, the fields are white for harvest. Not sure exactly what he was doing. John doesn't tell us. But he was letting them know that there was a harvest and it needed to come in, and they were the men to do it. This group of guys, not someone else. This group of guys. You have work to do, he says. Look, get to it. Because they're about to be flooded by these Samaritans who want to know the truth. He encourages them. The one who reaps is receiving wages. Jesus indicates that there is some sort of reward for faithfulness in this matter of reaping. This is not to be understood as though we somehow gain brownie points with Jesus and uh, that's part of why we're saved. This again is people who have already been redeemed by Christ, who already enjoy the benefits of salvation, receive benefits in heaven because of their faithfulness on earth. That's a biblical concept. And it's right here. And he speaks it to motivate them. Don't feel like you're wasting your time. Don't think that you're just kind of, you know, you put forth effort and nothing will come of it. There will be a reward. Put your hand to that plow and do the work that you need to do. It will be taken care of. And so it is, it is an idea more of grace upon grace. You've received the grace of salvation. You have the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who wells up within you that desire to witness. And all of that is the gift of God. And guess what? When people come in because you have opened your mouth, He's going to reward you for that which He already did. I mean, He, he did it all, really. <laughs> He gave you the Spirit. That Spirit works in you to will and act according to His purpose. And He even works within the heart of that person who hears to regenerate them so they believe the message that you And yet, He's going to give wages, so to speak, to those who engage in the reaping process. Grace upon grace upon grace. Good stuff. What are they reaping? Again, he wants to clarify this because they've been a little obtuse. Fruit for eternal life. This reaping is the bringing people to saving faith. And Jesus wants to make this clear. They did not sow, but they will reap. Who sowed? Some commentators think it, he's referring to the law and the prophets. That they, 
you know, broke up the ground and planted the seed, and now this harvest is going to arise from the ground, and, and it is the, the work of the disciples in the early church to bring this harvest in, and that might be it. I think it might be more simple with the idea of Jesus speaking to the woman, sowing the seed, and the woman going and spreading some of that same seed that is now about to be brought in by the disciples. But either way, they didn't start this process, but they can finish it. That reminds us, that should remind us of something. There will be times when you will sow seed and you will not see the reaping. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. There will be times when you will receive the benefit of other people's work. They did all the sowing, they did all the watering, and you received the benefit of the harvest. Okay? This is exactly what Paul talks about in Corinthians. One, one, one plants, one waters, another one reaps. Okay? Don't get caught up on who. But where, where are you engaged in this particular point in time? Where's the Spirit moving you to speak when you need to speak? But he does say this. The sower and the reaper rejoice together. Both are glad that there is an abundant harvest and that it's coming in. Both are glad of what takes place. And so whether you sow or whether you reap, you rejoice together with the end result those who are filled by the Spirit will rejoice with the angels. Luke 15. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Okay? Now, of course, they were the only, the only person who needed no repentance was Jesus. Okay? <laughs> so whenever any sinner repents and comes to saving faith... Jesus indicates that there is great joy in heaven. We join that great joy on earth when we rejoice over the harvest, the salvation of sinners. And so Jesus provides these promises here in order to encourage us to follow the lead of the Spirit. In Romans 8, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. What he's getting at is that one way you can identify who are the sons of God, are they led by the Spirit? Or are they led by the flesh? So, if the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, He's going to be leading us somewhere and doing, to do something. And that is to walk in faithfulness and obedience. And out of things like our fear of man. Okay? To walk out of, to walk away, so to speak. He's leading us away from our pride. All of those things that we create as obstacles to our own evangelism, our fear of contamination, uh, our fear of getting ridiculed and rejected, all of these things, the Holy Spirit works in us so that we, our faith is in Christ. And we love Him more and His opinion of us more than we love the opinion of the world that doesn't think He exists. And so the Spirit works in that way as well to overcome the internal obstacles that we place there. 
the Spirit doesn't just exalt Christ in Scripture, but He also exalts Christ in our witness. One last story before we're done. Some of you may have read this on the internet this week. Uh, If you haven't, you can go to our website. It's uh, connected via Facebook. You can read this story. But there was a doctor by the name of William Leslie. And this doctor in 1912 decided to engage in medical missions in in what we now call the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Back then it was just the Belgian Congo. He labored there for 17 years. Like many frontier missionaries, he didn't see a whole lot of fruit. And so at the end of 17 years, he went back to to his country of origin, discouraged, defeated. Nine years later, he died, thinking that he was a failure. Fast forward 84 years. 2010, a group of missionaries, in part helped by MAF, go to that same region. They think, well, maybe we'll find a couple people who still might remember this guy and, or whatever. What they discovered was actually a network of thriving, reproducing churches. They had come up with their own songs to sing, and they would sing them within the villages and spread the good news about Jesus Christ. He thought he was a failure. He knows he's not now. We know he's not now. God brought that seed into a great, mighty harvest. We don't know what God is going to do through anyone that we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with. Sometimes he hides it from our eyes. But years later we discover and we're amazed at what Jesus does with that little bit of obedience that we've performed through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the tainted woman at the well never thought that she'd be telling people about the Messiah. Rosaria Butterfield never pictured herself as a conservative Christian, much less a pastor's wife. But Jesus does do unexpected things in people's lives, including yours. Both of these women bore witness to Christ, even to those who have rejected and belittled them. If we are in Christ, we have the same spirit who can well up within us that we might witness to the Christ and to His saving work. And so I implore you, brothers and sisters, do not resist and grieve the Spirit, but follow His lead. Rejoice with whatever harvest you do see, even if you're not the one who reaps it, but only the one who sows. Let's pray. Father, I hope your people are encouraged. Help us to see how kind you are in all of this. In giving us opportunity to participate in this marvelous thing where people come from darkness 
and into light. That they come from slavery into freedom in Christ. Help us to be message bearers. That we thing. Help us to do. That you might receive much glory. That you might receive much praise. That we might rejoice and be satisfied more fully in you as we see how your spirit works, not just in us, but through us. In Christ's name, amen.